As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Um, As always, I'm Tim White and I'm joined by my dad, Professor John White. Hi there. Hi. Why are we professor this week? (laughs) Well, I like to emphasise your credentials because I've got so little to offer. Um, speaking of credentials, we're delighted to have a third a third person on 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 the show today. You can share some of their credentials. That's Reese Laverty. Hi, Reese. Hello. Good to be with you, fellas. Thanks so much for joining us, Reese. Um, would you mind just quickly introducing yourself and explaining explaining who you are? Yep, sure. Well, uh, I have no credentials. Um, lay that on the, <laughs> lay that on the table at the start. Um, my name is uh, Reese. Uh, I work for an organisation called the Davenant Institute, um, which I imagine most of our listeners will not have heard of. Um, so the Davenant Institute is largely based uh, in the US, named after John Davenant, who is a sort of forgotten English reformer. And our mission is to uh, retrieve the riches of classical Protestantism to renew and build up the church today. That is, uh, that is the, the smallest mouthful. Um, that we could give to summarise our, our mission. Um, we are all about retrieving um, things from church history, principally the Reformation era, but also from beforehand, um, because we think that a lot of the difficulties that the evangelical church faces today can be helped and addressed by actually kind of going back to things that we have left uh, in the past. We've grown out of the evangelical world, uh, love it, are very much part of it, and want to kind of try and serve it by going back and getting some of the family silver, as I like to call it, that um, hmm. we've maybe neglected somewhat so um, we publish books and we'll get on to talking about one of those later on and we have a quarterly journal called Ad Fontes that I'm the senior editor of uh, we run online classes and a degree programs through Davenant Hall our educational wing uh, and various other things uh, as well yeah fantastic um, and we should stay up front so there's no claims nepotism Reese is also a good friend uh, and in mm-hmm. fact I believe used to live with John way back when yeah, that's right. Uh, Reese was one of our um, lodgers in our home, so we, we got to know one another very well when, when he was a student. We did, yes. I was uh, I moved to London as a church apprentice at All Souls Langham Place, and uh, I was friends before that with uh, with another Wyatt child, Andrew, the youngest youngest of the three, and stole his room. Um, generally, sort of, <laughs> I, I, liked, I refer to myself as the son that John and Celia never had. Um, <laughs> those, those steady on, steady <laughs> on. Um, well, we're really pleased to have you on the show today, Reese, because we're going to be talking about um, the latest book brought out by uh, the Davenant Institute, which um, you've been involved in and which John has <clears> contributed <throat> a chapter towards, and that's called Protestant Social Teaching. 
could you just kind of give us the kind of elevator pitch, as the Americans would say, for the book? You know, where did it come from and what, what's, what's it all about? Yes, so Protestant social teaching, um, people may be familiar with Catholic social teaching. Um, so that is a body of um, material written by uh, various popes uh, over the course of the late 1800s and through the 20th century and into the 21st century, um, addressing social issues. So it starts in the mid 1800s addressing uh, things like workers' conditions and communism and capitalism. And since then has gone on to include all the kind of big ethical things that we know Roman Catholics have strong opinions about, um, euthanasia, abortion, birth control, marriage, all those kinds of things and the name given to the collection of documents that relate to that is Catholic social teaching. So yeah the feeling was that actually there is a great uh, amount in the Protestant tradition to answer ethical and social questions whether that's abortion, whether it's questions about the nature of the state, whether it's about um, tax, any, 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 anything you can really name. Um, a great deal of that is just stuff that we share with our Roman Catholic uh, cousins from pre-Reformation uh, eras, uh, with some distinctive contributions from uh, the Reformation era and later as well. So we're putting a flag in the ground for Protestant social teaching to try and equip uh, evangelicals, Protestants of all stripes, to live faithfully with all the complex ethical and social questions that we have to face in the 21st century. Yeah, this is an interesting um, area for me, because <clears throat> if I think back from a um, to my uh, medical career <clears throat> as a doctor um, when I was a medical student the whole issue of abortion was was quite uh, current and the abortion act was um, was passed in 1967 in the UK and I started uh, as a medical student in 1972 and there was a lot of discussion amongst evangelical Christians about the correct attitude to the legalization of abortion and it was notable that there were a whole number of quite senior experienced um, doctors who saw this as a good thing and who uh, were really very supportive of the legalization of abortion and supportive of abortion being carried out in the so-called hard cases and their arguments were based entirely on <clears throat> Um, their own interpretations of the Bible. There, there was no kind of interest at all in what Christians have thought about abortion for 2,000 years. It's almost like you just start with a clean piece of paper, you read the Bible, and I remember one of them, you know, and I, and I pray to the Lord and I ask for the Spirit to guide it, and the Spirit has guided me that it's, that it's okay for me as a gynecologist to do abortions. And um, whilst there were other uh, Christians, evangelicals at the time, who... who felt quite clearly that this was wrong and this was taking a life and so on. Um, so it was it was striking how much diversity there was in the Christian Medical Fellowship on this topic. Whereas when you when you looked at the the Catholic uh, Medical Association, they were absolutely united. You know, the church teaches this is wrong, and we all agree with it. So I I think it, it is quite interesting as the question why 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 were evangelicals particularly back then in the 60s and 70s apparently uninterested in in the the history of, of ethical thinking mm. well we, uh, sorry tim go on you go 
I was going to say, is there something kind of baked into the DNA, though, of the two traditions? In that, as we know, Catholicism makes a big deal out of the authority of the church, the the magisterium, the 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 accumulation of of papal decrees and Vatican councils and things laid up over time, and and the ordinary mm-hmm. Catholic is to an extent expected to align their thinking with this body of work. Whereas Protestantism, the Reformation, you know, I'm not an expert on the church history, but I understand a big theme of the Reformation was about the idea <clears throat> of releasing the individual Christian to consult their own conscience through the Spirit and to read the Scriptures in their own vernacular and therefore to draw their own conclusions so I, I do sometimes wonder if I mean I agree with what you're saying that that Catholics have in many ways been been better at pr- pr- kind of building a, a basis of of social teaching but I wonder if that's almost just a product of the kind of differing theologies of, of authority and and doctrine yes definitely that's, that's what I was going to say along, along those lines that um one of Rome's great appeals and arguments is that it, it is unified um, and there is, um, as you've said, a huge body of material to go and refer to. Um, so it's easy on one level to kind of fall back and, and say, um, look at what the church says and say, well, that, that's what I go along with. You can see this illustrated really well in um, the difference between when Jacob Rees-Mogg was asked about homosexuality some time ago and when Tim Farron was asked about homosexuality. <laughs> when Jacob Rees-Mogg was asked about it, all he says, you can find this online somewhere, is, I believe in the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, so he doesn't Just actually have to say... Ja- Jacob Rees-Mogg is oh, a... Sorry, um, people don't know. Yes. Co- he's a Roman Catholic. Yeah. But he's also a conservative politician, quite prominent in the, in the UK House of Parliament. Whereas yes, Tim Farron is a, was at, uh, several years ago the leader of the Liberal Democrat Party, which is one of the opposition parties here in the UK, and he's also an evangelical Christian. Yes, sorry, I should, should have contextualised that when I introduced it. Um, but yes, Jacob Rees-Mogg is able just to say, I believe in what the church teaches, and that's it. He doesn't, it doesn't even need to get any more explicit than that, um, which arguably actually gives him the wiggle room to personally hold a different view, but, you know, <laughs> that's a different question. Um, whereas Tim Farron, when he's asked about his views on homosexuality as an evangelical, is, you know, hounded, hounded relentlessly, um, and, you know, drilled down to the most specific questions of what he believes about certain sexual acts, um, because... It's in, in theory just him and his Bible, like that doctor that John was just referring to. Um, so there is that element, and that was always Rome's criticism about the Reformation that, well, would you rather have one pope or a thousand popes, where everyone is their own pope and is able to make their own decisions, and that just gives you chaos? Um, now, Protestantism doesn't have a pope, it doesn't have an authoritative kind of body of. You know, the magisterium, they call it, all the stuff written down, officially codified in Rome. But that doesn't mean it doesn't actually have a strong and um, authoritative in its own way uh, tradition of thinking and settled opinion and settled reflection on scripture. Yeah. Yeah. And that's certainly my own um, journey, if you like, is, is, is a realisation that uh, we don't just start here in the 21st century as believers in Jesus with a complete blank sheet of paper um which is what you sometimes get the impression from from some evangelicals that there's nothing to learn from the past 2000 years we just start afresh which is a terrible kind of what uh, c.s lewis would call chronological snobbery you know this belief that our age is special we are special people you know all those primitive people who came before we've nothing to learn from them and um Instead, it's sort of understanding that that God, the Holy Spirit, as he promised to to lead the church into all the truth, 
Um, Jesus promised that the Spirit would do that, and and the Spirit has been doing that over the last two thousand years. And we need to listen and understand what the Spirit has been teaching the Church over the last two thousand years. It's funny you say that because I remember that somehow uh, growing up that that I somehow imbibed that that exact view, which is that pretty much every previous Christian, with a handful of notable exceptions, possibly Augustine and maybe Martin Luther, were def- deficient. Uh, superstitious, uh, nominal Christians, and kind of authentic evangelical Christianity has only really been going for probably since the kind of post-war era at best, C.S. Lewis onwards. And I have no idea where I, that came from. I don't recall that ever being taught at All Souls when I was growing up in uh, <laughs> in kind of the bastion of, of conservative evangelicalism. But somehow, until my kind of mid-teens, when I started to reflect a bit more about it, I did implicitly believe that there was almost nothing to be gained from previous generations because obviously they were all medieval, superstitious weirdos who only were Christians because it was everyone was a Christian in those days. They never actually had properly made a choice to to follow Christ and read the Bible for themselves. Yeah, I think one possible reason that as evangelicals we, we broadly develop that attitude. Um it's it's partly just by omission. You know, when we're focused on the Bible, when we're focused on the task at hand and evangelism and whatever, we just tend not to talk about the past as much and therefore it, it comes to seem less important. Um I think maybe another reason is is the the emergence of evangelicalism as a distinctive movement. Now, people will kind of date that at different points, but broadly you can say evangelicalism starts since the 1700s with uh, the Wesleys, John Charles Wesley and the revivals and the great need for kind of, you know, personal commitment in in a Britain that's full of nominal Christians. And then, you know, all the world is my parish, says uh, John Wesley. And so the, the need to be within an established uh, church that has a, a what you call a confession of faith um, becomes becomes less important to people and free churches and congregational churches be- begin to multiply and they don't have um, confessions so if you're a Presbyterian for example you'd have the um, the Westminster Confession which lists all the kind of you know essentials of the faith and then other things such as like your view of the government and what the Ten Commandments mean and how they apply in society or if you're a Lutheran you have the Augsburg Confession which, which says similar things and actually all those historic confessions which early Protestants have have kind of ethical sections about society, about how the Ten Commandments actually sort of do have some bearing on the whole of society, not just Christians. But as evangelicals can move away from confessions, um, we we lose that. And actually, just over time, as we're addressing big things, the gospel, evangelism, heaven and hell, we leave other stuff behind and then we get a bit flat-footed when it comes to ethics. of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Should we talk a little bit about the about the book and, and some of the themes it covers? Um, I'm just looking down the contents page as we speak. There's an enormous range. You know, you've got everything from, uh, you know, just war, um, you know, abortion, divorce, uh, labour issues, property, environmentalism, taxation. Um it's it's not kind of um, shy in kind of scope, I suppose. <laughs> how did how did you kind of feel? Uh, how did you kind of select the themes you wanted to address, and, and were there particular commonalities when you started reading the different contributions? 
Yeah, certainly the, the topics are somewhat determined by the things that we know Catholic social teaching has a great deal to, to say about. So there are the hot topics, um, you know, of uh, abortion, divorce, um, euthanasia, death and dying, things like that. Um, but then, like I said, Catholic social teaching began its life actually talking about um, labour and working conditions and, and the role of the state. So we wanted to put things together that would, you know, kind of show show that Protestants have things to say about those as well. Um, as for, for common themes, um, one is, as we've kind of already touched on, that actually a lot of the ethical heritage of the, the reformers is just the same as what the Roman Catholics had, because they shared a tradition Um the reformers didn't view themselves as creating something immensely novel, but they were reforming what was already there, stuff that actually had kind of, you know, crept up in the late, late medieval era to do with, um, you know, indulgences and um, kind of denial of salvation by faith. Um, these were fairly kind of recent innovations that they were, they were trying to deal with. Um, but actually, the 1500 years before them, they were mostly pretty happy with it and believed, as John has said, that the spirit had been leading the church and that there was a settled tradition that, that they could rely on. So that's very common to all the entries. Um, but as for kind of distinctive Protestant things, um, I think certainly in the opening section, which is about law, justice and punishment, a Protestant view of the state um, comes through. So um, in the Reformation era, you've got twin errors, I'd say, of the Roman Catholics on one side who think that the church is this separate institution that should be able to tell kings what to do. And, it, and is totally separate from civil society. Um, and you have the Anabaptists, who are the kind of radical, um, sort of want to live in a commune, a bit like kind of you know, the Amish, they're sort of Anabaptists these days. Um, they also think they're totally separate from society, but rather than telling society what to, what to do, they just opt out entirely and form their own society. Whereas the um, magisterial Protestant view, magisterial meaning it's kind of to do with the, the, the magistrate and the state, is that actually you know, the church is kind of actually mingled in with the world. It's an actor in the political community and it's got to get in there and get involved and, and, and have something to say. Um, so that really comes through, I think, um, in, in them. And then I'll finish in a second. Another one is actually just about um, the con contingency and relativity of putting these things into practice. Um, so again, with... Catholic social teaching or Anabaptists, there's a kind of strong uniform view of this is how things must be done. Um, whereas actually I think what you see with the reformers is, yes, there's a ethical principles tradition that they have, but they are very live to how that works out relatively in different societies. And so, you know, you'll have uh, reformers in like Switzerland where there isn't a king, they're all kind of independent city-states. They have no issue with the fact there's a king in England or that there's an established church in England because um, that's that's how things work in England. That's fine. Um, there's a great chapter on tax in there, which sounds really dull, but it's super interesting because as we're recording this the day after uh, Liz Truss has resigned as prime minister, as we have learned, different nations will have different attitudes towards tax. And that's fine. There shouldn't be a uniform, you know, um, one size fits all approach to those things that works in every society. And that is a bit of very Protestant wisdom, I think. Yeah. Mm. And, and do you think people would be surprised, Protestants, maybe evangelicals, would be surprised to find out how much they agree with Catholics on some of these key issues? Because, again, the kind of stereotypical world that I grew up in, there was deep suspicion of Catholicism to the point where I think it was quite mainstream to effectively say Catholics weren't actually Christians at all. Mm -hmm. and And there was this... I would now see it as a bit of a caricature based on the kind of the late medieval era you're talking about, as though Catholics are still believe 
that the church has unchanged since 1500. And so mm-hmm. I think there would be some Protestants reading this book who might be a bit shocked to discover that actually they're drawing on some of the same sources, the same writers, the same traditions, and coming to the same conclusions as their Catholic brethren. Yeah, de- definitely. And um, I-, I think people would be surprised, certainly, to ha- just in how much an agreement Protestants and Catholics were on many things, especially sexual issues, basically up until the 20th century. You know, there's a great chapter in there about um, procreation and contraception, um, or actually the author of that, Matthew Leanderson, t- takes a bit of a pop actually at things that Luther and Calvin got wrong um, on that on that regard. But you can find a very sharp dividing line in where Protestants started to be more permissive about uh, contraception uh, in the early 20th century, um, similarly with, with, with um, a- abortion and things like that. Um, so I think people will be surprised um, to, to that extent, definitely. It's certainly the case in, in the kind of fields that I've been uh, involved in over the years, both the sort of traditional areas of abortion, <clears throat> euthanasia and so on, but also, uh, you know, new biotechnologies um, and uh, engagement in the, the issues, uh, very contemporary issues, that I've discovered we have very close um, agreement with, with many thoughtful Catholics working in the field of bioethics um, and uh, it's been a very fruitful collaboration over the years for me working closely with with friends from the Catholic tradition and incidentally also from some of the, the Orthodox Jewish tradition as well um, so I, I think there is a, a, a great deal of co- in common uh, looking back I think that evangelicalism was was quite infected by some ideas uh, particularly Joseph Fletcher who and his concept of situation ethics it, it, Joseph Fletcher argued that uh, you know having rules about what's right and wrong and commandments and so on is is really not the Christian way what Christ teaches is that all that matters is love and so mm-hmm. the only rule is that you have to do in any situation you have to do what is loving and of course that might mean therefore that it is loving to to to, to do an abortion or loving to, to do a euthanasia or whatever, provided it's motivated by love, that's fine. And I think that, you know, if anybody who knows the kind of history of, of ethics would immediately say, hang on, it's just not as simple as that. But mm-hmm. for, for, for evangelicals, particularly in the 60s and 70s, who didn't have any of that historical awareness, th- that sounded very attractive. Mm. I was going to ask, on top of that, then, do you think that, that Protestants were, quote unquote, bad at social ethics for a, for a period of time because uh, they are so kind of laser focused on on what we kind of see as first order issues, you know, the gospel and key doctrine doctrine um, and, you know, evangelism and mission and and kind of thinking about labor relations or or what the Bible might say about tax codes was seen as a kind of either either a waste of time or a distraction from from kind of god's god's call to the church yeah i i do i i think um and it really starts in the kind of early 20 20th century i think although you can trace it earlier than that and and that is the distinction between worldly matters and spiritual matters and i mean i was brought up with a very sharp distinction between these two things spiritual matters was worship and prayer and loving Jesus in your heart and worldly matters were being concerned with issues of the world and and yes sometimes you had to do that you had to earn a living and so on but these these were worldly and, and were things you, that you shouldn't allow your heart to 
to to get drawn towards and 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 so i think that very simplistic uh, sometimes called pietistic approach to christianity was actually very common amongst evangelicals um mm. uh, certainly in the earlier part of the 21st century yeah i i agree um and i i think we should say there are understandable reasons that that happened um and it can sound a bit like with this project that it's kind of it's sort of you know evangelical bashing but i'm i'm very proud to be an evangelical it's a label i happily still own despite you know many fellow evangelicals thinking it's you know got toxic connotations that we, that we need to get rid of I, I would disagree with that quite strongly for various reasons but that's a that's a different episode um but hmm. that era that john's uh, mentioned about this probably began early 20th century and you think not long before that you've got you know lord shaftesbury who's doing everything from, you know, care for animals to broad broad social reform. Um, what happens in that period of time? I think it's the advent of kind of liberalism and um, evangelicals beginning to feel the pressure, certainly in like the Church of England, for example, of potentially being kind of pushed out of their parishes or the um, ordination colleges being taken over by liberal theologians who are denying, um, you know, the, the truth of scripture, the virgin birth, the reality of the resurrection, um, all that kind of stuff is kicking off in the early 20th century. And so there is an understandable reaction then from evangelicals to um, want to keep the main thing the main thing. Um, you know, Christianity is, is in decline. Um, you, we want people to have a living, lively faith. Um, so we just want to preach the gospel to them. Um, and the academies have been taken over by kind of more liberal theologians. So they, they, they retreat from those. And therefore, the kind of hard thinking that is necessary in ethical and social matters just doesn't get done because you haven't got um, scholars and great minds set aside to do that. You know, kind of people that we would have once called the doctors of the church doing that kind of theological work. Um, we lose that, again, for understandable reasons, because there's a sort of war footing. Um, but, you know, governing in wartime is not the same as governing in peacetime. Not to say that we're in peacetime now. We're still very much under the under the kibosh as evangelicals, but, you know, we can't carry on on a total war economy forever. It's interesting that there is threads of that even this, in this present day. I mean, you guys will have heard of a, f- a famous book by the um, American, I think he's now converted to Orthodox, actually, Rod Dreyer, who's a kind of conservative mm. writer and activist. And he wrote a book called The Benedict Option, which was effectively mm-hmm. making the case that actually Christians, um, I don't know if he would call himself a Protestant anymore, um, should kind of withdraw from society. Society was so uh, overtaken by kind of liberalism in, in various forms and godlessness that the only kind of option was to be a kind of faithful remnant that withdrew from society, battened down the hatches and tr- tried to avoid getting entangled with all the mess and the sin and the brokenness and kind of rode out the storm. Um, It's not a kind of mainstream view per se, but it's certainly, I I see particularly in the States, that idea of moving away from kind of social engagement is is still current. Yeah, and I don't think um, you could, you should rule it out of court because I think if you, if you take 2000 years of church history you can see different points in time in different places where christians felt they had no alternative but to take Mm. that strategy the um you know society as a whole was so pagan so hostile so dangerous the only way of preserving faithful communities faithful to christ was to withdraw and um i think you know it's conceivable that we will face that at some point in the future in in western countries i mean who knows what you know where we might be in 20 30 50 years time but i think i would argue and and i'm I'm sure 
most of us would argue that we're not in that position at the moment. We still have many, many opportunities. We have democratic structures. We have opportunities to be salt and light <coughs> in the societies in which we've placed. And yes, we need to uh, train and encourage and resource uh, one another so that we can be effective witnesses in the secular world. But, but actually, we need to penetrate society. Mm -hmm. We need to have Christian voices in every single aspect of an area of society um, in order to to be, be salt and light in the place in which God has placed us. Mm, I mm. think um, just on Brodrea, I, I would hardly recommend, even if you're disagreeing with it, for anybody to read his book, The Benedict Option. Um, I'm broadly a big a big fan of, of Brodrea. He, he gets things wrong, but um, I think he would characterise his, his plan as more of a, a tactical uh, retreat rather than sort of a withdrawal. Um, Yes, and he, I think he would say this, take those opportunities in society's institutions to be salt and light, but also the withdrawal is sort of to the end of building our own institutions um, that can last when possibly we don't have room in the existing institutions in society. You know, the, the, the metaphor of the book is that St. Benedict founds the Benedictine order of monasteries, which kind of um, in, the, in the dark ages after the fall of the Roman Empire, before the Middle Ages really get going, kind of keep Christian wisdom, keep historic texts, um, keep um, you know, things like medicine and architecture and all that kind of stuff alive in a society that doesn't want it anymore in order to kind of go out and, and use, it, um, use it later on. Um, and it's that lack of kind of institution building and, and thinking ahead is perhaps certainly in the UK what's characterised evangelicals when it comes to ethics and social stuff. Um, hmm. Whereas working for an American organisation, I'm continually rebuked by the American entrepreneurial spirit um, <laughs> and their desire to just to build things and to plan ahead and and to think of stuff you know there's brits well you know why do we need to build institutions all the institutions have been around since the time of william the conqueror um <laughs> but actually you know if we look ahead and think about the social state that we're in um it may be a wise thing to go to the ant you sluggard um and build something that's going to help the church through the ethical and social storms to come yeah and i guess there's something else i would love to take from the states which is the kind of confidence in in what we have to offer to the to the to the the wider non-believing society you know i think about the state of kind of social affairs here in the uk and there are a number of very live debates where i think christians should have confidence that they have something really distinctive and and useful to contribute you know you think about the arguments around euthanasia you know that's not a done deal of course you know lots of western nations are moving towards it but that's not a done deal and Christians have with with imagination and ingenuity can bring distinctively Christian arguments maybe you know adjusting the language to appeal to those who don't believe in the authority of scripture or whatever but you know there's something really distinctive to bring to there and it would be a real shame if Christians said well you know I know what I think about euthanasia but there's no need there's nothing I can regain from diving into the maelstrom of the public debate you know and there are other issues you know transgender uh, questions around gender and sexuality where yeah, it's not easy. It's not even. It's quite scary at times. But I think I'd love it to see Protestants and evangelicals have more confidence in what in the kind of deposit of faith that they that they base their teaching on, and say actually, there's wisdom here for broader society. God is concerned not just with keeping Christians kosher views, but He would love His wisdom and His truth to permeate into into the rest of our of our secular world. Yeah, and you say what you will about our American cousins, but 
they overturned Roe v. Wade, something which no one ever thought that they would do. Now, you may think a deal with the devil was done in that process. That's a, a different conversation. But like you said, there's this this confidence there um, that um, they can make a case for these things, um, even among those who, who aren't Christians. Uh, and I think one of the other threads you'd see in, in the Protestant social teaching book is the presence of what we would call natural law, um, things that you can expect all human beings to know and to believe um, without necessarily actually being Christians, you know, that murder is wrong. Um, those are those are things which Christians can can work with in order to benefit uh, the, the common good of society. And again, another, another distinctive thing there is the common good, um, as it's been historically understood, is not um, just unfettered uh, uh, freedom for everybody individually to do as they please that's that's not what the common good is the common good is something much deeper and is about is about human flourishing um and that's something i think christians can make a case to non-christians about transgenderism is a good example that you've mentioned that we're already seeing that house of cards come begin to kind of come down almost as quickly as it went up um because you don't have to be a christian to realize that women exist um yeah Well, we're running out of time for this episode, um, but we're going to pick up the conversation with Reese uh, again in, in a second part next week. Um, so thanks so much for joining us, Reese. We look forward to talking a bit further. Um, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, as always, you can get in touch with us if you've got any thoughts on what we've said or any suggestions for, for future topics to discuss on the podcast by emailing us. Uh, the address is molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk. Um, and uh, you can find lots of resources to stimulate your own thinking um, things to watch and read on on john's website that's johnwyatt.com um, um, reese if people are intrigued by the book how can they go about getting a hold of a copy yeah uh, you can either go to davenantinstitute.org and uh, find it via our bookstore um, or you can just go to amazon we do all of our printing via uh, amazon uh, print on demand so um, just go to amazon.co.uk and look for protestant social teaching um, full title is Protestant Social Teaching and Introduction, uh, and you can find it uh, find it there. Fantastic. Right, thanks for listening, everyone, and uh, we'll see you next week. You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. 